0: If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in First Peter again. Uh, last week we started. The title is uh, "Living Proof of a Loving God." It probably could be "Loving Proof of a Living God." You can probably switch those any way you want, and it sort of works. Uh, but we did start First Peter, and if you recall, Peter told these Christians living in Roman provinces, these Christians trying to follow Christ in a culture where. Uh, The current of culture was flowing in the opposite direction, so they're swimming upstream. Peter reminds them who they are and what they have. He reminds them of their identity, right? He says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who are we people born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and you may recall that it includes an eternal inheritance that the text says is undefiled, unfading, and imperishable. So we are people born again to a living hope, Living in a culture, trying to follow Christ in a culture where the current of culture is flowing in the opposite direction. So Peter starts the book reminding them who they are, what they have, because as they look around, they're inclined to forget who they are and what they have and fixate only on their circumstances. We don't do that, but they did it occasionally back then. And now Peter is going to tell them, here's how you orient your life around this truth. So we have started with identity, who you are, and now Peter's going to talk about here's what you do to have your life revolve around this truth. Because for many of us, life revolves around work. For many of us, life revolves around family. And so if something's wrong with family, we'll do anything to change that. We'll move. We'll get a new job. we'll, We'll change anything to fix family, change anything to fix work or to follow A job, And and so Peter is going to tell them, no, 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 here's how you make your life revolve around your living hope. This is going to be very practical today. Uh, I remember uh, running and doing cross country in high school, and I had, there was a a guy that ran with me who was two years older than me. His name was Skyler, and he was the best runner on the team. And it was wonderful because running with him, I learned how to run. And watching him train, I learned how to train. And watching him strategize about how to plan a race and how to plan a strategy and how to prepare, I learned how to plan a race and how to plan a strategy and how to prepare. And so to have something, to have someone to watch an example is of immense value, right? To have something to aim for, something that's beyond where you're at is of immense value. And so what Peter is going to do this morning is – Give us some real concrete, some real practical things and say, this is how you revolve your life around your living hope. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter 1, we're going to read verses 13 through 25. I'm just going to start in verse uh, 13, and uh, I want you to see from this part of the text that the grace of God in our lives and the grace of God has permeated who we are, and we're no longer trying to earn his favor or prove ourselves worthy, when the grace of God has permeated our life, it leads to sober living. It leads to sober living. 1 Peter 1, Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action, being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the literal construction of this idea of preparing your mind for action. The literal construction goes something like this. Gird up the loins of your mind. So I apologize if that takes you to a weird place. But if you were used to wearing a robe and had these long outer garments that resembled bed sheets, you would see Peter's imagery a little clearer where a person would pull up the robe and wrap the ends around their waist, pull them up between their legs and then wrap them around their waist and that was game ready that was you were mobile you could run that you could fight whatever you needed to do you were ready it's football today right lots of football that's helmet on chin strap tight shoes tightened you're ready for action you're prepared for whatever might come your way and so that's what Peter is talking about this idea of preparing and he says it starts in your mind how many of us know that the battle uh, for each day starts in our minds right Long before behavior, right? Belief always precedes doing. That's why Peter starts with identity before he gets to the conduct. Conduct, the, a, ver, a, wor, a word that Peter uses often in this book, uh, is used 13 times in the New Testament. Eight of those 13 usages are just in First and Second Peter. Heavy emphasis on conduct. As you think about preparing, I want to go back to cross-country because it was kind of a season I want to blank out of my mind. Because in hindsight, I don't know why you run for fun no ball to kick or to score or to shoot, um, but I did it for six years. Uh, there's a lot of preparation that ha- that happens for a rather simple sport. You just run and you try to be faster <laughs> than the person next to you or hopefully behind you. You just run and, and there's a target and there's an end point and you start at one spot and you just run as fast as you possibly can uh, to the finish line, but there's a lot of preparation for a very simple sport. And if you don't prepare well, you're not going to do well and you're probably going to get hurt. And so some of you know that preparation actually begins long before race day with a steady dose of uh, long distance endurance running to build endurance, to build up your lung capacity, uh, your stamina. There's also a a need for short term, short distance running to build strength and to build speed. So a lot of preparation happens long before race day. But on race day, there's a whole bunch of preparation that happens also. Uh, One is your diet. You eat certain things, and you drink a whole lot of water. I remember eating four Big Macs after a basketball game once. They were $2 for two Big Macs, which obviously you'd agree you can't pass up a deal like that. But you can't do that before you run a race, right? Or You're, you're going to get hurt. It's not going to feel good. And so diet is an important part of preparation. Your gear, what you're wearing, is an important part of preparation. Running shoes are like five or six ounces. They weigh less than my Bible. They might have spikes on them, depending on your course. Uh, you wear the shortest shorts imaginable, uh, and then some sort of top that weighs, you know, like a paper towel. There's there's just nothing to it. Uh, but your gear is important as part of preparation. Your diet is important as part of preparation. Your planning prior to race day. All of this goes into your preparation. And then when you show up to the course, you jog half the course because it's not weird enough to run the whole thing once. You had to do it another time. Um, But you you look at the course, and you study the course, and you plan a strategy of where you're going to speed up, where you're going to slow down, where you're going to conserve energy, what's a great time to start preparing for a final push at the end. All of this strategy goes into preparing to be ready when the gun goes off so that you can run the race to win. Some of us, as we think about the race of life, uh, Paul compares following the Lord to a race Some of us are going into the race of life having just eaten four Big Macs, and we can't figure out why we don't feel good, right? We're naive to the preparation needed, not disciplined in the ways that discipline is required if we're going to run the race and feel good and do well. Uh, The spiritual race begins in our mind. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is how do we prepare our minds if significant thrust of this pack, passage is preparing our minds so that we can focus on what Jesus is going to do tomorrow, what Jesus is going to do when he returns, that we can focus today on that. If a significant thrust of this package is, passage is how do we focus on that, then a fair question is how do we prepare our minds? Just a couple, a couple thoughts. One, um, first, we have to have the sense that our thoughts matter to have a sense that our thoughts matter and examine our thoughts, understanding that today's thoughts determine tomorrow's choices. Uh, Some of you recall when software piracy sort of first started or copying music illegally and the phrase victimless crime was was used everywhere. uh, Who really loses if you download a song illegally? Some of us think our thought life is, is like a victimless crime. If I don't actually say it, if I don't actually act on it, what's the harm? So we just have to see that if holiness in our lives begins with our minds, uh, that it is critical that we become familiar, that we scrutinize our thoughts, that we examine them on a regular basis. Uh, Second, we train our minds to think like Jesus. Some of you are familiar with Romans 12, 1. It says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to everything that you see out there. Don't be conformed to the way that living the way that everyone you work with lives, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So there's this diligent preparation of of renewing our minds that is part of transformation. Many of us want God to speak while simultaneously ignoring what he's already said in his word. Many of us want God to speak simultaneously, filling our minds with as many competing voices and then being frustrated that we can't hear his uh, a third item, take every thought captive. Second Corinthians 10, five. Uh, we have to just understand that we have an enemy and that enemy is a liar, right? We have an enemy and that enemy is a liar and bombards us with lies and doubts every day. And so the enemy is going to tell you you're a loser. Quit. God's word is going to tell us that your sin has been paid for. And Jesus came that your joy might be made full. The enemy is going to tell you that you have no gifts. You are useless. Take your bag and your ball and go home. The Bible is going to tell us that we were created to do good works and to walk in them. The enemy is going to tell us if people know our past, if people knew what we were thinking about, if people knew what we did, they would run. They would want nothing to do with us, right? Again, the Bible says that we're all on an equal playing field. We're all guilty, been born again to a living hope if we follow christ we're all innocent Uh, doesn't make our lives clean in the sense that our past is gone but it makes us pardoned right it makes us judicially uh, the innocent verdict is applied to our account the devil is going to tell us a new job a new relationship is going to make us happy Bible was going to tell us no it's not going to make you happy it's going to perpetuate whatever you have uh, right now but only in Christ will your joy be made full we just got to understand that we have an enemy and he is a liar and so we have to take every thought captive it's part of examining those thoughts where do they come from and what do i do with them last girding your mind requires that we know our purpose uh, jesus said i have come to do the will of him who sent me and was crystal clear on his purpose And so is it any wonder then that as we look at his life, everything that he did was in line with coming to do the will of him who sent me. If you don't know your purpose, you're guaranteed to not hit any target. Uh, Think about running. And we had some people on our team who ran because it was fun. Just a few. But they just liked it. We had some who ran because it was a social thing. Their friends did it. So they didn't train particularly hard. They were just happy to be out with their friends. And then there were some that wanted to win. And they trained very differently than the ones who just wanted to be out with their friends. And and so the challenge to us is to run the race to win and to prepare accordingly. There's a way way of living that causes us to become spiritually complacent. And so in this text, uh, when we see set your hope fully – we want to pause and say, What does it mean to set my hope fully? And is it possible that I'm not doing that? And is it possible that I'm setting my hope fully on something else? And so, for many of us, where we place our hope falls into two categories either people uh, or circumstances, right? Either people or circumstances. And so, Peter's saying, Don't set your hope on people. <laughs> Don't set your hope in yourself to bring about what you want. Don't set your hope in your spouse do everything for you that you're not. Don't set your hope in your children to affirm and validate you as a human being, as a a good parent. Don't set your hope in a boss to recognize your true hidden talent and promote you accordingly and pay you handsomely. Don't set your hope in a person. Set your hope in your living hope and your eternal inheritance, what Jesus is going to do when he returns. Don't your hope on circumstances, right? Some of us are just waiting for one more promotion. We talked about the mortgage this morning. Some of us are just waiting to pay something off. and if our circumstances would just change just a little bit, wouldn't that be great? Peter says, don't set your hope in people. Don't set your hope in circumstances. Focus today on what Jesus is going to do tomorrow. Focus today on what Jesus is going to do tomorrow. Setting your hope on circumstances or on people is kind of like playing the lotto. Even if you win, you lose. Uh, many of you know the odds of the lotto are terrible, so pretty much everybody loses. Some of you also know that even the winners lose because it mostly destroys all their friendships as everyone seeks after them and, and wants their money, and it gets very upset and does incredibly uh, violent things when they're not given uh, your money. Even if you win, pretty much everybody loses first point today is the grace of God leads to sober living the second is the grace of God leads us to take very seriously the call of Paul Christ and leads us to holy living let's read first Peter 14 and through 16 uh, the grace of God in our lives leads us to holy living verse 14 says this as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy is a difficult topic uh, because for most of us, when we talk about holy, it's kind of like what happens when you tell a three- or four-year-old to eat all their broccoli because there's starving children in another country that don't have food. Like that's never worked at our house. I don't know. Maybe it, it's worked at yours. But a three- or four-year-old doesn't tend to go, that's a great point, and then finish their broccoli or asparagus. A- and so for many of us, it's just, it's just an unrelatable concept because it's way beyond us. It's way beyond our capacity even uh, for complete understanding. And so I want to uh, look at 1 Samuel 2, a story about a lady named Hannah, and she talks about God's holiness, kind of a neat, kind of a neat text. There's two ideas that we're going to hit on with holiness. One is that God is morally pure; that His holiness permeates every single one of His attributes; that all that He does is shrouded in moral purity, in perfect and complete holiness. Uh, the other part of holiness that we're going to hit on is that. He is holy, he is set apart, which means he is without equal, and it's not close. The football games this afternoon might be close, right? Uh, with God and holiness, he is set apart. It's not close. First Samuel chapter 2 uh, picks up on the story of Elkanah and Hannah. Some of you know those two names. Some of you, this is the first time hearing of them. Hannah has been praying for a son. She's not been able to have one. She's praying in the temple and Eli, the priest, comes to her and says, go in peace. May the Lord do as you have asked. She comes back a year later with son. And this is her prayer. First um, Samuel one, one and two. Uh, and then we'll read a few more verses of her prayer that uh, expand on this idea of holiness. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation I rejoice in your saving there is none holy like the Lord and then there's a colon there and it says let me explain there is none holy like the Lord for there is none beside you there's that without equal aspect of his holiness for there is none beside you there is no rock like our God there is no anchoring presence like our god there's nothing to hold on to in a storm like our god there's nothing that doesn't waver like our god verse three talk no more so very proudly let no arrogance come from your mouth for the lord is a god of knowledge and by him actions are weighed hannah has seen the holiness of the lord he has been near to her he has been kind to her and so she says Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. When you see the holiness of God, the reality of who you are, the reality that you don't measure up to him, the reality that you don't deserve to be in his presence, the reality that you don't deserve to have your petitions heard, your emails answered, your text messages received is overwhelming. And she says, let no more arrogance come from your mouth. Uh, Verse 8, she said, he raises up the poor from the dust. And he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. The Lord in his perfect moral purity, in his complete and infinite holiness, raises up the poor. He is attentive to the needy. He hears and sees and responds to the plight of those who suffer. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So he's, he's built all of this. He designed all of this. He put all of this together. Uh, I've been to some of your houses. Some of you are remarkably good wor- woodworkers. Some of you have built the coolest things, uh, barns, uh, all sorts of things. Hannah has seen the holiness of God, and she says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world." But whatever we've done, he's done it bigger. Whatever we've done, he's done it better. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. We don't have to guard ourselves. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. His holiness, his absolute moral purity, compels him to guard those who are his, to protect those who are his. And she says, not just that. He is so holy, he is so pure, he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot not be just in judging sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. And so she says, he's so holy, so purely that the wicked will be cut off into darkness see this moral purity. We see that he is set apart uh, without sin, incorruptible. Uh, It marks all of his attributes. I don't know how you are at the end of the day. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the word hangry, right? Combination of hungry and angry, right? And who you are changes a bit when you get So this is not a time to elbow the person you're sitting next to. Uh, You might be thinking of someone else. Odds are they're thinking of you. At the end of the day, my capacity to be patient with the kids wanes, right? If I've had a long day or if I'm hungry or if I'm busy or if I haven't slept, my capacity to love and be gentle and tender with my wife wanes at the end of the day. When I look back over a week, the things that I most regret usually happen late in the evening about the time we're putting the kids to bed, right? Because my capacity to love them seems to fade a bit over the course of the day. And, and so what we understand is in his moral purity, in his holiness, uh, he doesn't get hangry. He doesn't get moody. He doesn't have bad days. You don't catch him uh, in the middle of a rough moment, okay? He doesn't take a nap and then talk about something he is without sin his patience never lessens even when we misstep his love is never blunted by frustration not only morally pure but without equal um isaiah 36 is a neat passage about this uh, neat if you're one of god's people <laughs> uh turn to isaiah 36 if you have your bible there it is okay Isaiah 36, uh, we have King Hezekiah, King of Judah, and King of Assyria, a guy named Sennacherib comes and is going to overthrow Hezekiah and take the city. Sennacherib is, is is Goliath, and Hezekiah is David, and so Sennacherib comes, and he basically says, make peace or die. Very simple. You choose, and then we'll, we'll let it all play out. A messenger of Sennacherib comes to the people uh, of Judah, and to hezekiah and the messenger says this he says don't listen to your king your king is going to tell you that your god is going to protect you from the assyrians your god can't protect you from the assyrians none of the gods of any of the other countries any of your neighbors have been able to protect them your god won't be able to protect you either okay just advance warning your king's going to tell you to trust god don't do it make peace and live This is the Lord's response in Isaiah 37, starting in verse 33, part of his response. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. In other words, uh, he's not even going to get close. This isn't going to be a battle. By the way, verse 34 By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 36, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. He is without equal problem too big, no opponent too strong, no health diagnosis too impossible, no relationship too unfixable. He is without equal. So Peter says if he is without equal. If he is perfect in holiness. Be holy as he is holy. Uh, and so this is just one of the the many great tensions of the Bible where we're asked to do something that we go, oh, it's like when my kids look at me when I say clean the playroom. Oh, if you looked at that, you wouldn't have asked us to do that. Be holy as he is holy. Yeah, it's overwhelming. How do we do that? I think David paints a good picture for us, right? You, you know that David missteps all over the place, right? You know that David falls on his face spiritually, time Time and time again. But one of the beautiful things you see in the book of Psalms is that David loves the Lord. David delights in the Lord. And you know that because he delights in his instruction. How are we going to be holy if we don't know what it means to be holy? How are we going to be holy if we don't understand the example of God in the Bible of perfect holiness? Uh, Listen to what David says in Psalms 119 about his delight in the law of the Lord. Uh, Psalms 119:97. Nine, oh, how I love your law. Psalms 119:98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. In other words, they're I don't just love them, but they do good for me. I like what happens when I follow your law. Psalms 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste? Kay? I don't just tolerate these. I don't just understand that this might be a good way to do life. It seems to go favorably. They're sweet. They're desirable. Psalms 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I'd suggest that if, if we don't see with a sense of awe his holiness, um, we might not have truly beheld him, we might not have truly seen him, because what we see time and time and time in Scripture is when someone catches a glimpse of the Lord, what's on their mouth is holy, holy, holy. It happens to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He gets a vision of the throne of God, and he sees angels flying around saying holy, holy. Holy. Revelation chapter 4, same thing happens. John looks into the throne of God, and those that are there with God, those that have seen him, those that are there in his presence, all it says is they're just holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Third, the grace of God leads to fearful living. So not just sobriety in the sense of seriousness of being devoted in our following, um, not just holy but the grace of God leads to fearful living. Let's read verses 17 through 21 of 1st Peter 1. Verse 17 says this, and if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. I like that the thing that he compares as dismissible and as useless and have no value. And perishable things like silver and gold, things that are useless. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times For your sake, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Some of you are familiar with the verse in in 1 John 4.18 that says, perfect love casts out fear. And, And so there's this tension of, wait a second, I thought if I follow God, no fear. Uh, easy street now Peter here is talking to believers right so they don't have fear of eternal damnation they don't have fear that one day they're going to see Christ and Christ is going to say depart from me I never knew that's not what they have fear of they have fear of if they live in disobedience if they live obstinate lives even as followers of Christ that there will be judgment for that Um, a couple verses Proverbs 3.12 says, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12.6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so there is this very real sense that we are still judged, that there's still a judgment happening for the degree to which we have stewarded our lives well in obedience to our calling, to the one who has called us. experience with firearms and you've taught others how to use them, clean them, uh, and eventually y- and where you tend to start uh, when you're helping someone learn is with gun safety, right? You have a respectful fear that if not handled correctly, it results could be harmful, okay? Um, when we don't have a healthy fear for God's judgment, our ignorance can lead to spiritual. where we respect the power of God. We stand in awe of his holiness, of our lowness and his highness, and it creates a reverential awe, a respectful fear. Part of fear is his words mean more than culture's expectations. His commands mean more than what my friends or coworkers tell me to do. Uh, Some of you remember in the book of Exodus, the Hebrew people have been in Egypt for a couple hundred years. They've multiplied. The number of people has grown. Pharaoh looks out and says, this isn't good. We've got this pocket of people who don't worship our gods, who don't submit to my leadership, and they are thriving. And so he says, we will do population control, and we will kill a bunch of the babies. And Exodus 117 says, but the Hebrew midwives The Lord rather than Hebrew and it led them to obedience and so what we see is that a healthy fear of the Lord causes us to prioritize what he's asked us to do maybe then more than what feels right more than what we might want to do what others might expect of expect of us so when culture tells us to do something and it stands in contrast with what God says we choose what God says when we're interested or curious Or have a desire for something that is in contrast to what God says, we choose what God says. You remember uh, Peter in the book of Acts is thrown in prison and beaten for preaching the gospel. And when he's brought out, they say, You can go, but you can't preach anymore. And what do they say? You be the judge of us, whether it is right to do what God has asked, or whether it is right to do in man's eyes. But we cannot stop preaching. We cannot stop preaching. So there's this prioritization of what matters, prioritization of who ultimately we report to as part of what it means to fear the Lord. The grace of God in our lives leads us to a reverential fear of our living God. Uh, Verse 18 and 19 reminds them that they were rescued from the futility that's passed down to them from their forefathers. Think about this for a second. Most of these in his audience are Gentiles, which means that the Lord saved them out of a godless background, out of a pagan background. They were rescued out of that and born again to a living hope. But some were Jews. Some came from a very religious background. And so the Lord saved them out of their empty religion. The Lord saved them out of trying to do good things to earn God's favor. Uh, And so, so Peter says, remember where you were. You Gentiles, you were lost. You Jews, you were lost, too, and working twice as hard. Remember what God saved you out of. It leads us to a reverential, grateful fear of our living and loving God. Last this morning, the grace of God leads to love for others. Let's read to 22 through 25 as we think about what it means to be holy, to have a fear of the Lord, to be sober in our spiritual thoughtfulness. For some of you, uh, the passage in James comes to mind. Uh, it says, pure and undefiled religion is this, but to visit orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, the mark of maturity is not how much you know or how many verses you can quote, or those although those are good things, but the mark of Christian maturity is how well do we love each other, how well do we love those here, how do well, do we love those? Aren't here, uh, First Peter one twenty-two through twenty-five. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 25, and the word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, this thing that remains forever is that word, that good news that was preached We still have Isaiah open. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to close with Isaiah 40 this morning. Um, we could talk more about what it means to love, and we could talk about our uh, really, well, sometimes good and sincere and genuine efforts to love, and, and sometimes not so good, not so sincere, not so genuine attempts to love. We could talk about the conditional nature of our love, where we often love those and then expect some sort of repayment, some sort of reciprocation expect them to maybe prove worthy of that love or to be a good steward of our love in contrast to God's unconditional love right the idea that that he died for us while we were still sinners that before the foundation of the world Jesus was foreknown in other words a provision was made for our sin before we were even here before we even blew it um, but I want to look at Isaiah 40 because it's an interesting passage and the first 39 chapters of Isaiah sort of form what some consider to be the first part of the book, and from 40 onward is, is sort of the second part of the book. But the first 39 verses, chapters focus essentially on just the futility of all things outside of God. And, and then come 40, it moves to uh, the power of God and the plan of God to bring his peace. And so Isaiah 40 stands as this sort of turning point. Okay, let me uh read just a few verses from Isaiah 40. You can read the rest of the chapter on your own. It's a it's a great chapter, but um as I read it, just maybe keep in mind a situation where you have been intensely frustrated with someone. Uh maybe keep in mind uh, a time when you had been in some great way offended, wounded by someone. Maybe your instruction had been ignored, maybe your offer of help or a gift in some way had been discarded um, and rejected, have that in mind as you you read um, Isaiah 40. Uh, Here's what Isaiah records from the Lord. From verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem moment that you were thinking of did you speak tenderly this first thing on your heart comfort comfort for this person who has wounded me the Lord says comfort comfort my people says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned in other words we are wiping the slate clean not going to keep holding over Jerusalem's head all that they've done. I'm going to let go at some point. And that point is now. Uh, verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God's going to make all things new. God's going to make all things new. He's the one who's going to do it, and in their mess, the glory of God is going to be revealed. That's good for us. It's really good for us when God looks at us and says, "I want my glory to be seen in each of you," and so I'm going to work in circumstances, and relationships, in ways that refines your faith and builds your confidence in Me, and that is going to be good for you, and that is going to show the glory of God, and it's going to make us living proof of a loving God in our homes, in our neighborhoods in our places of work, in our community here in Douglas County, uh, he continues, verse 7 and 8, and this is the verse that Peter quotes, the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. So I suspect that when Peter quotes this, his audience may have shifted back in their minds to this text. Remembering God's faithfulness to his people. Uh, Verse 9 Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. They've made a mess of things. And God comes to them and says, Behold your God. I am your God. In other words, I have not quit on you. I've not abandoned you. You've rejected me over and over and over, but I'm going to continue to pursue you. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see the, you see the gentleness, the tenderness, the patience the holiness of God, of the love of God applied to his people. He he teaches them, he treats them like little lambs. Coincidentally we got a couple bummer lambs this week. Perfect timing. We have them out in the barn and there's a bunch of straw and I made a barricade so that they can't get out and we came home one day, maybe it was Monday this, this last week and one had gotten out and proceeded to shove its head in the slats of a bed frame that was in the barn. So I put a barrier up for this thing's safety, and in spite of that, it got out and then shoved its head in between boards and got stuck. Put everything this little sheep needed inside the barricaded, although not so well apparently, in the barricaded uh, containment. And it wasn't content with what I put there because it went looking for more and it got out and promptly shoved its head in the slats of the bed frame. Isn't it interesting that that this is the word picture that we see throughout the Bible to talk about us? How dumb is that sheep? And so that's not meant to in some way berate us That's not meant in some way to demean the image of God in us. It's just simply to say, wow, this loving father, tenderly, gently, patiently, against all odds, in spite of repeated offense, comes to us and holds us tight, clings to us. When do we need to both be held? When we're scared, when we're feeling like exiles. The love of the Father holds us tight to his chest. So as we think about what what does it mean to love each other, as a defining mark of what it means to be a follower of Christ, just go and do the same thing that Jesus has done for you. Just go and do the same thing. Uh, Pursue even when maybe your pursuit is not received well. Care for others even when they haven't cared well for you. As you're driving into church on Sunday, ask the Lord, who can I encourage? Who can I pray for? Who maybe do I need to invite into my home this week for dinner? Give me someone to love well. Not looking for someone else to love you well. Not walking in saying, what can someone here do for me? Lord, how can you use me today? Because the grace of God in our lives leads us to love others well. I would maybe just close by saying, never underestimate big things that God can do through a small act of love. Never underestimate the big things the Lord can do in and through our lives The small act of love that makes us living proof of a loving God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that gives us something to aim for like holiness and even f- fear and love or these things that in our world, in our context, don't coexist, Um, but with you, Lord, they exist in perfect harmony. And so I pray that our response would not be to feel crushed by the weight of expectation, but Lord, that we would have something, someone to aim for, an example to follow, a person maybe a little bit further ahead than us that we can look to and that we can watch and that we can learn as they learn and learn from them. Lord, may we be a church that is defined by people loving each other well. And when Roseburg Alliance Church is mentioned in the communities, wow, I, they care so much. Lord, not for our name, but for your name. Lord, we are living proof, uh, not of loving people. We are living proof, Lord, of a loving God. And so cause us to fixate first and foremost on you and on your word, Lord. May we take seriously your calling upon our lives. Teach us, Lord, even this week, as David said, Lord, love your word, to delight in it, that it would be sweet to our taste. Lord, there's people in our lives who are are hurting in incredible ways ways right now. Lord, and, and I confess, Lord, that in so many instances, Lord, I just miss it because I'm so fixated on my day and my agenda. Lord, help us to not be fixated on our days and our agendas and on what we want and on what we think we need. Lord, make us open to being your loving Douglas County. In Jesus' name we pray.